First Person Advisors is now a subsidiary of NFP, the fifth largest insurance broker in the world, combining local expertise with access to global capabilities and solutions. Learn more at firstpersonadvisors.com. Had enough. On Election Day, vote break ballot for Indianapolis mayor. The year 2007. Greg Ballard, a Gulf War veteran, retired U.S. Marine Lieutenant Colonel, entering another battle politics, throwing his hat into the ring to lead Indiana's largest city. Against long odds and a shoestring budget, Ballard beat two-term incumbent Bart Peterson and took over as mayor of Indianapolis in 2008. He moved the needle on life sciences, downtown development, green energy, and quality of place. Social Trail is amazing. There's really nothing like it in the world. I really want people who visit Indianapolis or live in Indianapolis to get out along the Culture Trail. You know, you got to build the kind of city where uh, young men and women want to live and they want to raise their families and where businesses want to come and recruit those sorts of people. So that's really what we've been doing. Everything we did was for talent attraction. You have to look at that and, and bring people in. The 48th mayor of Indianapolis, military veteran, leadership consultant, and author, who now calls South Carolina home, Mayor Greg Ballard, my guest this week on the Business and Beyond podcast. Welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Deck. Greg Ballard was born and raised in Indianapolis, the city he would eventually lead. He graduated from Cathedral High School, earned an economics degree from IU, went on to get a master's degree in military science from the Marine Corps University, and then served in the first Gulf War. Ballard jumped into the mayor's race back in 07 with little name recognition and not a whole lot of money in the campaign coffers. But he managed to pull off one of the biggest upsets in Indiana political history knocking off incumbent Bart Peterson. Ballard served two terms before deciding against running for a third. Last year, he and his wife, Winnie, decided warmer weather was calling their names, so they moved to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And Mayor Ballard, uh, I'm sure that climate is perfect for you to get the sticks out and hit a few golf balls. Thanks uh, very much for joining me on the podcast this week. Well, it's great to be here uh, once again, Gary. I've always loved doing your show, so it's really great to be doing your podcast now. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, so what, what are you up to now? I mean, you, you were such a high, really, and we'll get into this, but you're such a really high-profile mayor, mayor on so many issues, and you've, I know, remained busy, but uh, is it is it all leisure, golf? I mean, you're a big golfer. What, what have you been, uh, been up to out in South Carolina? Actually, uh, I, I'm not playing as much golf as everybody thinks I am. First of all, I had uh, double knee replacement four months ago. Oh, so that's down for quite a few months. And I, and since then I've only played twice here in the last few weeks. So I, I, and I even so I only play like once or twice a week anyway. So I, I'm kind of doing some reading. I'm doing some writing down here, uh, a lot of writing actually on uh, different things. And, and uh, so I, I'm enjoying it, but uh, I, I like getting up in the day. I, I still work with any women in tech as you, as you are, are quite right. aware but uh, I, I do a lot of writing uh, during the day and, and do supplement that uh, to deepen, uh, deepen the quality of the writing. I do a lot of reading. I know lots of folks uh, getting to, to an age where hips and knees go. You had double knee replacement. That's, that's big surgery, but you, you just four months ago and you've been playing some golf since then. 
Yeah, it was it was difficult. Most people do one at a time. I did both right. at the same time. And I tell you, without Winnie, I don't know what I would have done because it was beyond painful the first few weeks. But uh, it was about the three-month mark that it finally started to turn a little bit, that I, I started to get uh, it loosened up a little bit. And, I, you know, I did my exercises and everything else. But now I'm at the point where my knees, for the first time in 20 years, don't hurt. Wow. So I have no problem going out walking. I have no problem going to the gym and doing weights or doing uh, the bicycle or whatever without pain. And that is a relief. I mean, other parts yeah. might hurt a little bit, but but not, right. not, not like my knees did. So physically, I'm actually in terrific shape and I feel almost renewed and ready to go once again. And I remember you talk about riding the, the bicycle. You were a big cyclist. Uh, I remember you'd get on the bike here in Indianapolis and go on big, big rides, right? Well, we did a lot of rides in Indianapolis. You know, we, we kind of created the bicycle culture. And I think that was really just pent up demand. They needed some infrastructure and some programming. And now I think it's still really big. And I appreciate the fact that the trails are still being built out quite nicely right now. So I think that was wonderful. I wanted to use them. I wanted to highlight them. As you know, when I would try to do something new, I would try to highlight it. And that just that just blew up with four bicycle rides a year, including the polar bear pedal, which was uh, beyond silly to do. But it became a big, big hit. And we love doing it. And so I, I love, <laughs> I love bicycling for many reasons. One, try to keep as best shape as you possibly can under the pressure. But as a, as I like to say quite frequently, when you're going up a hill and your and your thighs are absolutely burning, you're not worried about the budget. So <laughs> right, right. You're just, you're just worried about uh, can I get up this hill uh, while my thighs are burning. And, so that's uh, it was a lot of stress relief on the bicycle. And me and uh, one of my security guys, Chad Gray, we would always go out early morning at Eagle Creek. We'd, we'd get in there about six a.m. and do it. Well, the mist was still on, and the deer were out, and everything. It was it was just wonderful. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the pressure. Was that ultimately because you you were, were very active, uh, high profile? Was that ultimately just the, the the stress and strain of the job? Why you decided not to run for a third term? Well, I looked at it a little bit differently. That might have been that. I think that played into it. Uh, I, I told people I was physically and mentally exhausted, and I meant that. And some people thought I was saying that to not run again for some other reason. But the fact is, I, I think the people deserve a mayor who's fully engaged all the time and is ready to do it physically and mentally. And at that point in time, after eight years, I, I felt like I was I was tired, and I'm not sure I would have been a good third-term mayor. I might have been, but uh, I could feel that the energy was kind of sapping on me, and I wanted to. Uh, and I would have been fine if I could have taken a two-year break and went back to it, but that's not how the game operates. So I just thought it was time to move on uh, yeah. and let, let the city have somebody who's, uh, whose energy level at that point in time was pretty good. I mean, my energy level right now is very high. And, uh, you know, if I was in that position right now, I think I'd do a, a wonderful job. But at that time in 2015, I think I was done. You know, your, your name was bandied about for, for other offices, including governor. Did you seriously, did you really give that a a thought, a consideration to, to run for governor? I did, actually. But again, they asked me uh, to do some extraordinary things, let's, let's say that. Uh, and I, it wouldn't have, again, at that time, it wouldn't have worked because I was tired. Right? Yeah. So I, I thought about later on, but then I, you know, I kind of mentally moved on. I mean, I got asked a little bit for Senator. I really got asked seriously for the 5th District recently, but now Victoria Sparse House. Uh, so we thought about that very seriously. Somebody from uh, the White House came down and, and uh, talked to me about that. Really? And wow. We, we thought about it for about a month and uh, you know, with my old political team, 
What was the determining factor there on deciding not to run run for Congress? Well, it was uh, that. (laughs) That's a that's a great question. And let's just say that the federal government was in turmoil at the time. (laughs) And as you know, I'm somebody who likes to get things done. I don't. uh, I'm not a big pontificator, uh, and I. And I, I felt like Congress at my age, I would have been a six to six year old freshman. And did I want to go through all of that as a freshman? Yeah, probably not. If I was maybe you know 20 years younger going through that, I could figure that all that out or would want to figure that out. But I thought I, I had other things that I wanted to do that I could get done that uh, would be more more fulfilling for me. Yeah. And, and so Victoria Sparse, as you know, eventually got the position. And I was actually just on a, uh, a Zoom call with her with the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition because she's from Ukraine and she was speaking to that group and I was on that group and I think she's done a good job uh, in there. So I'm happy for her and I'm happy for Indiana. You know, you talk about Congress being in 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 turmoil or politics in general. What's what's your take on on the state of politics? Uh, you know, in general, uh, especially at the federal level. I mean, a lot of people say it's just it's just broken. It's difficult to get anything done because it is so divisive and 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 so politically charged every issue no matter what it is makes it difficult to 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 advance anything what's your take on 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 the political climate right now my my take is different than most and uh, you have to hear me out just a little bit every year we do the dollar summit at the university of indianapolis uh the theme is always embrace the future and i told them this year that we're not as divided as we think. We are divided at the federal level in Congress and, and the political parties up there. We are divided in the media, in the national media. I'm not sure, not local media, but the national media. But as I told students, look outside. Do you see anybody kind of arguing with each other? When, I, when you take trips, go on vacations, when you walk out the door, when you walk out on this campus, do you see anybody arguing with each other? And I, No, I, I don't think we are as divided of people as everybody thinks it is. The, the, the irony of this is the two groups that are telling us we're really divided are the national media and Congress, which is trying to raise money, trying to divide us to raise money for campaigns. So those are the two groups, and those are the two least respected organizations in the country. <laughs> when you look at the polling, right? right? The yeah. National media and Congress are, are polls both below 20%. And, so, <laughs> and yet these are the people we seem to be listening to. You know, when I talk to my Democratic friends uh, and some of my even my Republican friends who I disagree with, clearly on, on some of these yep. issues, uh, we're not at each other's throats. We disagree. We kind of talk it out. But we're not saying, I hate you. I'm never going to see you again. I'm, so I think we need to be a little circumspect and a little skeptical of the national media and Congress who's trying to raise money on the division telling us that this is how we really are. Because I honestly, on a day-to-day basis, I don't see it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Take us back. November 6, 2007, you shocked the Indiana political world, defeating the incumbent Bart Peterson and what many describe as certainly one of, if not the biggest political upset in Indiana history. Take us back to election night. What what was running through your head as you've seen the results come in and you, you find out that, hey, I, I'm actually, I'm going to be the mayor of the city of Indianapolis. I was calmer probably than most people thought you know the political people and then some of the local some of the local media not a lot of them but uh like oh god he's now he won't know what to do and all this other stuff i mean it's yeah. kind of funny in that regard but 
I mean, I wasn't a young pup at that time. I was in my fifties. I'd spent a whole career in the Marine Corps, been to war. I mean, it's not like this was going to uh, overwhelm me. I, at least I certainly didn't feel like it was. I had good people around me all the time. I was very fortunate to that, but that particular night was really, really fun. I written a chapter about this for something that I'm going to do in the future. And so I recall it pretty, pretty well that uh, I, I was euphoric because just the, the nature of our campaign, as you well know, and it was, uh, it was <laughs> David against Goliath and, and David, yeah. David, David won again, but it was, it was a lot of fun to see at the old national center in that, in that room, nobody was there. And then the results came in at six o'clock and they saw, Oh my God, look at these numbers in the room started to fill up over the next two hours. And that was, that was actually kind of fun to see. Uh, lots of my family were there. So that was, that was great. I remember, uh, when I got the phone call from Barton, as, as you would expect, he's very gracious and a very dignified guy anyway. And so, um, he was terrific. Said, let me help you if I can. And all of, all of the right things there. And then I went up and gave a speech and I always joke that, uh, very short speeches, you know, I never gave long speeches. Anyway, I said, it's, uh, later on, I said, it's really easy to give a speech when a hundred percent of the people cheering for you at the top of their lungs all the time. <laughs> right. I mean, it was a wild scene, uh, wild in, in a good way. Uh, people cheering and then they, uh, and so I appreciated it. I appreciated yeah. that what went on beforehand. And now, uh, even though lots of the people that were there that night probably didn't go out of their way to, to really help me, but the fact that they were there tonight and say, Hey, I want to help now. I took to heart and, uh, and the transition was terrific, uh, probably textbook. And so I, I was, I was happy that evening. And I thought we just had to turn the page and start governing. Yeah. Well, you were a very active mayor. Green energy, energy security, trails, bike lanes. Uh, you can go on down the list. Quality of place was a big, uh, a big focus. As you look back on the things that you that you implemented, that you that you led the charge on, is is there one thing that you're most proud of, or you're, you think is most significant in terms of your legacy as mayor? Well, there's a, a few what I might call physical things, like the sewer work was huge and saved a billion dollars for the ratepayers in the area. You know, the bicycling, the, the robotics, all, all of those things were terrific and how we kind of changed the culture in that regard. But I, I honestly, I, I'm pretty open about this when I say this. I have so many really, really talented folks, young folks, and I think we created a new generation of leadership. I think our team really created a new generation of leadership. And you look at where they are now, uh, like Ryan, <laughs> Ryan Vaughn, right, and, and Brandon Brown and Jason Cloth and, and uh, Greg Wilson and... Uh, Mike Huber, just uh, yeah, I could go on. You know, about ten more Those people. Those are some like, big look names, at, right? Look yeah, at, look at where they are and what they're doing, and how meaningful they are right now in the city and the state. And all, they all were kind of they they worked in our administration and kind of got their name and built up their reputation in our administration. And now, seemingly, everybody wants them uh, to be a part of their organizations too because they're all pretty pretty smart people, yeah. really smart people, and they're doing terrific work around the city and the state. Yeah, well, you know, when you came into office, the, the economy, uh, certainly nationally and, and here in Indiana, was really going in the dumps. I mean, that was, you know, a, a, a really a dire economic situation, a recession, basically. Uh, how challenging was it to, uh, to, to, to come into office? A, a political novice certainly had not, had not served before, but uh, facing all these challenges and then the economy in the dumps as well. It was terrible. In the economy, the Great Recession was the term, right? And it's kind of funny. My uh, 
my controller at the time, David Reynolds, wonderful guy, said, don't worry, at about 11 or 12, this will we'll start to come out of it, and you'll, the <laughs> revenue will start to increase in the city again. Well, by the time I got down to 15, that never really happened because of the delay <laughs> and everything. So my, my successor, Mayor Hogg, said he, he was able to get a lot of that money, but you know, he, he struggled through it all. That said, I think we did a good job. The trajectory of where we were going was horrible. Uh, and a lot of it was the Great Recession, obviously. I thought we had changed some spending patterns in the city also, and, and we did. But one of the things, going back to what you said, being very proud of us, during the Great Recession, we, we tightened up a little bit. It was very hard. People beat you up because, you know, you're not taking care of my program. You're not doing this. And, oh, my God, you, you look like a monster. How can you cut this? And but things had to be done. I mean, things just had to be done for the overall good. Uh, but we actually cut the deficit uh, for the city, cut the debt of the city two-thirds in those eight years. Uh, during this very difficult economic times, we went from about $330 million to about $110 million by the time I was done being a mayor. And I was really proud of that, that I was able to leave the, uh, plus the fiscal stability fund that uh, we set aside when we put the sale of the water and wastewater assets to. Uh, Citizens, that was $80 million we set aside. We still had 78 there in cash for my successor at that point in time, plus the other reserves and the state owed $50 million too and all mm-hmm. that. So I think we put them in pretty good shape financially. Plus, we took the debt down dramatically. So the Great Recession was very, very hard on the city and other cities across the nation, but we didn't lay anybody off. Uh, we worked through attrition and then brought it back up where we could uh, as the money came back in. Yeah. You're very much a supporter of alternative energy and, and, and uh, energy independence, energy security. One of your high-profile initiatives was certainly bringing uh, electric vehicles, Blue Indy, the uh, electric car sharing uh, from a French company. Very high-profile. Ultimately, it didn't work out. Is that a is that a regret, or what's your your take on on that uh, that that experiment? I'm very much into energy security, and it's playing out as we speak in Russia and Ukraine. Over half the money that Russia gets is from oil and gas exports. We've been fighting in the Middle East for 50 years over energy. I mean, that's why our troops are in the Middle East, to protect the oil supplies. So, so all of that was involved in that decision. Uh, I, uh, I actually I was happy with Blue Indy. Uh, frankly, I, I don't think uh, most people say might say otherwise that, but uh, this was a huge European conglomerate saying, we want to invest into Indianapolis. And I think when we, uh, we, we, when we mess with that, somebody who wants to put that much money into your city, and you know, we have to be careful how, they, uh, how we treat them, frankly, uh, because other conglomerates around the world are looking at that city and how are they going to be receptive. So we have to be careful about that. The other piece is the system was designed for 200 sites. And they for I was gone, so I don't know, but it never got to 200 sites. It kind of stopped at 100. I think the, I think it worked at 200 sites. Uh, and why it stopped, frankly, I still don't. I don't know. I haven't asked that question yet. To be, to be honest with you, I will probably hear shortly. But why they did not allow it to go out to 200 sites, and and I know there were also private companies that wanted to use Blue Indy on their campuses around Indiana, because the cars had a range of about 150 miles, and so working between the campuses would have been perfect for them and I know they wanted to use them and maybe because of what was happening uh, elsewhere within that program they didn't do that so uh, I, I know I know what that means I mean I, I know when private companies don't necessarily want to go against the grain and uh, get on the wrong side of anybody but there were a couple things that probably contributed to them eventually going away not necessarily because the program itself uh, was incorrect uh, I think 
for whatever reason, they didn't go out to 200 and the private companies went away. And so I yeah. think that's probably more, more involved with them not being there than anything else. Yeah. You mentioned a global conglomerate, global. You were a big fan of putting Indianapolis out on a global stage, felt it was very important to uh, shine the spotlight on Indianapolis far beyond uh, the Indiana borders and, and really overseas. Uh, talk about that focus. I mean, you tried some, I thought, pretty creative things. Among them, cricket, right? Do I remember right. that right? You're t- and, and, and some people said, why in the world would you do that? But I know I've talked to or had talked to, to uh, you know, employees at Lilly and some of these, uh, you know, Cummins uh, and some of these young people who were all over that. They thought that was the best idea ever because of the popularity of cricket and what it might mean, you know, bring to Indianapolis. Cricket is the second largest sport in the world. And if you look around, uh, at least in America, the people who play cricket are medical, engineering, and IT. <laughs> so I built those fields. Uh, you know, it's more than just the cricket pitches out at the, at the World Sports Park. I mean, there's lacrosse and hurling and all those other sports too. But the cricket draws talent. I, I did all of that to draw talent. I mean, it was a talent attraction. I got the idea because Cummins had a cricket pitch down in Columbus to attract uh, engineers from South Asia. That's that's the whole point of all of that was to draw talent into the city. The, the point of becoming more global is to draw talent in into the city. I, I get there are so many hilarious stories about me traveling overseas to double the number of sister cities, but some of them came back. And emphasis was a direct result, a direct result of our creating a sister city relationship with Hyderabad. There's no question about that. Sometimes it works. Sometimes you just want to create relations. Yeah. Uh, the the um, you may not be a good time to say it, but the, our relationship with Hangzhou and China has been actually been very close. And uh, they have, they put up a uh, you know a large uh, Indianapolis display in their public library mm-hmm. in Hangzhou. I mean, these things matter to me in the long term. I'm always thinking about for the city. I'm thinking about talent attraction. For the world, I'm thinking about global peace. And I, I think those are the things that matter to me the most and that's why i did what i did and we went to the sister cities that thought i thought made economic sense for indianapolis and that's mm-hmm. that's they were chosen specifically for those reasons so and i visited i'm probably the only mayor who ever has and ever will visit all of the sister cities and uh, we had a lot of fun doing it got beat up a little bit for it as you know but i ultimately i thought it was uh, the right thing to do yeah the religious freedom restoration act rifra was certainly an extremely hot button issue, a divisive issue that brought a lot of attention, negative attention to Indiana. You you came out very forcefully on that issue. And some would be surprised that uh, a Republican as yourself would do that. But you did talk about that and and, and why you did it and, and kind of your thoughts, because that was a very critical, very important time, certainly not just for Indianapolis, but for the state of Indiana, the business community rallied and you know, got through it, but talk about that, that period of time and, and why you decided to come out and, and uh, do what you did. Well, there's a lot of moving pieces to this one, but again, ultimately this is about talent attraction. I'm always trying to expand the tax base in the city. That's, that's the whole point. You can't have all these services unless you continue to expand the tax base in the city, property tax, income tax, and all that. Riffer was a direct shot at that. People in the state asked at the time, I don't know if they do yet. They don't understand the, the millennial talent and the young talent that want to come. They now move to a place where they want to live and where they want to live was an inclusive global city. That's what they want. 
and they're not going to tolerate anything that goes against that grain. So if you want the talent to come into the city, which then the businesses will come uh, uh, after that, then you, you have to look at that. You can't expand your tax base if people are leaving the city and if businesses are leaving the city and people were not going to tolerate what Riffer was. Again, I've, I've, uh, I've really put my thoughts together on this uh, on paper. And I don't, the state house is, is I, I don't even know how this happened over there. I mean, I have a pretty good idea, but I, you have to understand legislators, right? They, they will do what somebody tells them to do. Uh, I, I would not on any issue, whether it be a health issue, whether it be a solar issue, whether it be a religious freedom issue or whatever, but they look to certain people and say, should I vote yes or should I vote no? It's not like they're all reading the bills and studying the bills themselves and the impact. They were told many times before that bill was passed what the consequences would be and how the language in that bill, which if you read the bill, was innocuous. I read it. It just doesn't say anything, really. But the, that bill, when combined with the rest of Indiana Code, was discriminatory. Now, they're going to dispute that, but the fact is it was. It absolutely was. And it played out pretty quickly. And you know, the questions were asked of uh, serious people, people in the know, people who could have changed this. You know, if a gay couple goes out to have dinner in Indianapolis, can they be denied service? I will tell you, nobody in the state house would answer that question. No one would answer that question. There's a reason they would not answer that question. Some of them knew the answer. The other ones did not know the answer because they'd never been asked like that before. But they had been asked by me and others in a particular meeting, and they did not like having that question asked because they didn't know. Mm-hmm. But we knew. Other people knew. And that's why this turned into what it did, because people did know the answer to that question. Some wanted that question to be, uh, yes, they could be denied service. Most people did not want that, because there's no way in the world I'm going to sit here and tell you that Republicans wanted to be discriminatory against gay people. I am never going to say that, because mm-hmm. that just is not true. But they passed the bill that literally didn't, they did not know what they were passing. And... But they did it anyway, even though they were told, asked not to. And then they, and you saw 10 days. That was by far the hardest 10 days. Uh, yeah. My, how, 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 yeah. Because how, I remember very, very well how, how difficult was that because there was so much, you know, firestorm coming into Indiana from all over the, all around the globe, companies under pressure, et cetera. How, 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 how bad did it get? It was way worse than what we've been told. And there are people to this day will say, see, not much happens. See, it wasn't that big a deal. It was a big deal. I had mayors calling me up saying, Greg, I love you, man, but no one is going to be allowed to travel to the state of Indiana. I was calling conventions right and left because they were they were dropping off. Every major sporting event, other than the Final Four around the corner, uh, as you know, every major sporting event was leaving. Every one of them. Wow. Businesses were leaving. And what was being said publicly by others when I was talking to business leaders, they were telling me something quite else. Some of the people were spinning it, but business owners were telling me something else. I think our tech community would have dissolved quite quickly if that thing had stayed in place. Uh, as you found out a couple of years later, Salesforce increased by 800. But I would tell you, if River stood as it was, I think Salesforce would have left the city. Yeah. I mean, that's how bad this was getting. And all I could think of was all those tens of thousands of hospitality workers who are going to lose their job because of this bill. And, and I'm daring to tell you to this day, people don't think it was that big a deal. It was a big deal. And it was what we were, while we were salvaging what we could in the middle of it, and we were able to salvage lots of it afterwards. But while it was happening, 
it was extremely scary because all I could think about was I got 40 years of previous mayors on my shoulders right now who built up the city to this point, along mm. with the great nonprofit sector, the great business sector in the Indianapolis. We built it up to this, and this bill was going to take it all away in a matter of weeks. And that's what it looked like to me. Wow. We're going to have much more with Greg Ballard growing up in Indianapolis, a military career that took him around the globe. And what's next? That's when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. First Person Advisors is now a subsidiary of National Financial Partners, the fifth largest insurance broker and consultant in the world. Develop your total reward strategies all in one place with the combination of First Person's local expertise and NFP's global resources and integrated solutions. Learn more at firstpersonadvisors.com. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week, the 48th mayor of the city of Indianapolis, Greg Ballard, who is uh, now comfortably sitting in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Uh, mayor, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Hey, I want to go back. I had some great stories in the first uh, half of the podcast here on your your time as mayor, but you are an indie guy. You grew up in Indianapolis, uh, went to school, high school in Indianapolis, Cathedral High School. What was growing up in Indy like for Greg Ballard? Uh, very cloistered, actually. I I always tell people I kind of lived when I was a youngster, two blocks by four blocks where I lived at 3131 Arthington Boulevard. And I didn't really travel. I mean, I didn't even leave the state until I was the age of 16. And that was only to go to my brother's wedding in Toledo uh, for a weekend. Uh, and then I didn't leave the state again until I was 20. I mean, I, wow. I mean, I was, I was, we were not uh, an upperly mobile family. Let's put it that way. And, uh, and so we, it was a very small uh, area that I lived in and uh, I went to school obviously, but uh, other than that, I just lived in the two block by four block neighborhood. And I didn't think there was anything else in the world at that point in time. Yeah. Well, that's certainly changed for you. you again, you graduated from, from cathedral high school Got an economics degree at IU. Then you joined the military, right? You joined the Marines. Why? Why make that move? Well, that was a that's, <laughs> that was quite the move to say. Uh, to be honest <laughs> with you, at that point in time, I was looking around. You have to remember, this is the seventies, uh, and all I saw around me was people who were graduating from college, getting a job, working for the same company for forty years, taking two weeks of vacation to Florida, and they were going to do that. You know, work fifty weeks four to two weeks and you're going to do that for 40 years and then you're going to die and yeah. that's what life looked at, like to me and i said i don't want to do that and i there's a whole story about me not wanting to join the marine corps uh, i was i mean i had 90 hours done at iu and i was kind of floundering i mean lots of people know this i was not exactly even though i was a smart kid i went to cathedral when it was an all-male high school right i got a full ride to cathedral academically i tested wow. in so i go to iu and i'm just i've got all this freedom and i'm doing nothing with it and i'm doing nothing productive with it and i'm not it wasn't a bad kid i wasn't in trouble but i just wasn't yeah either so uh, about 90 hours ago i went into the recruiting office in bloomington and to talk to the army navy and the air force i don't know anything about the military nothing i mean not really a military family at all so i but i just thought i'm not talking to the marines but i'll talk to the other three services to see what would be going on and i had 90 hours done and as fate would have it 
those other three services were busy, the recruiters were busy, and our old Marine there was not. And he was standing in the hallway, and I'm standing in the hallway. And, he, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, don't talk to me, don't talk to me. He comes up to me and he goes, and he's an old drill instructor. Says, hey, want to talk about the Marine Corps? <laughs> I'm not exaggerating that. I'm not exaggerating. That. It scared me to death. Absolutely scared me to death. I went into his office, stayed there for two hours. You know what he told me? He told me, get back to school, graduate, come on as an officer. That's what he told me. 15 years later, I am the commanding officer of a recruiting station based out of St. Louis. None of my recruiters would have told them that. Wow. Told me that. Yeah. He told me that. And, uh, and that's eventually what happened. Wow. That is a, that is a great story. 23 years in the, uh, in the Marine Corps. You, you gave uh, uh, much, obviously, to your country. What did that military service give you? What did it mean to you uh, to serve in the military? Oh, it gave me everything. I, I, need, I, I know I need structure in my life. And the Marine Corps obviously provides structure. But the other part is you have to perform quickly uh, in the Marine Corps. And I was not performing quickly. At, uh, I did not, you know, I use such a wonderful place. I did not take advantage of all the wonderful stuff down there. I wish I had. But it didn't. Uh, but in the Marine Corps, you either make it or you don't. And they don't care if you make it, if you don't make it. They, and they just move on to the next person. So I, I wanted to make it. I wanted to be something. I wanted a, a paycheck. I wanted to uh, serve my country. And I wanted to do all those things. So I better perform. And thankfully, I had enough capability to perform. I mean, I, I found my wife through the Marine Corps, obviously. My first duty station was Camp Pendleton, California. I met uh, Winnie out there. My first three years in the, in the, in, in the, in the fleet, as they call it, after schooling. I went to Okinawa, Japan, and holy cow, now now my world is opening up, right? Um, uh, a few years later, I went back to Okinawa on a, on a full year, brought Winnie over, uh, and traveled all throughout Asia on our own. Oh, my God, this was unbelievable. So I, it, it was terrific. So I, I was able to travel quite a bit, obviously. Um, eventually did some schooling that had me travel. Obviously, the Gulf War was in the Middle East. Uh, my last duty station was in Europe. Or in Stuttgart, obviously the family, my kids were old enough at that time. They traveled all through Europe. They were 11, 12 when we went there. They were 14 and 15 when we came back. And so they, they traveled. It was great. They they could go around the world on their own. And they have. Yeah. Um, so I was very appreciative of all that. So I just had a much wider view of the world than I did in my little two block by four block neighborhood as I was growing up. Yeah. And I, I was able to put all these pieces together and do a lot of studying. And uh, so my whole worldview changed, obviously, in those 23 years. Yeah, well, hey, I want to mention, uh, ask you about Winnie, because you two, uh, a couple, very visible to see you at many events uh, while you were mayor, but you met her while you were stationed in California. How, how, did, you, how did you meet? What do you remember about your first date? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Let me, uh, she was working at the bank where I was banking. I was a second lieutenant. I had like $5 in my pocket. I was <laughs> that guy at, the, at that point in time uh, and so she was working there and i kind of, kind of noticed her and i can't remember exactly how i got the emphasis to ask her out but i was i was kind of seeing somebody else at the time but i went to lunch with her and i went out with her a couple times too and and uh when i went to okinawa for that six month uh with my with my unit when i came back from that six month pump over in okinawa i came back to her uh and we, we have been together pretty much every day since I got married six months later on uh, January 2nd of 83. And, and we've been, you know, it's 39 years now, but I, yeah, I was, I, I met her, was kind of dating her a little bit when I went to Okinawa, came back, went straight to her, stayed with her ever since. 
that's that's the short version of that. And, yeah, uh, been a pretty good decision. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How, talk about what Winnie has meant to you, to your career, and and her support. And and uh, I know it's very that's a special relationship there. How, how would you describe it? Well, it's it is special because she's always been very supportive of what I've done. I've done I've been supportive of her too. You know, when she was trying to get a degree at Campbell June and. And somebody was trying to talk to her out of the accounting degree that she wanted. And I, I went, I went to, the, to the administration of, of the university there locally. And I said, no, wait a minute, Eric. She put all this time in. And you're not going to give her these few classes to look. And they relented. I was a nobody captain. In, in the, but you know what? They listened to me. And they gave her the classes. And, so, and then she became an accountant. And it was kind of funny. It's a great story. As soon as she got that accounting degree, I stopped doing the taxes. I stopped paying the bills. I stopped doing everything. <laughs> I mean, I haven't done anything. I haven't seen a paycheck in 35 years. And uh, it's just that she does all of that stuff uh, completely. And of course, you know, when you run for mayor and do all this other stuff, she's like, really? really?" <laughs> but, but, you know, she was very supportive. Uh, wasn't sure early on. Uh, she had a lot of people talking to her when I was running for mayor, especially after and right after I won the race. Lots of people came to her and said, you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this. And I said, honey, you do what you want to do. You want to stay home? You stay home. You want to travel with me? You travel with me. You want to you want to be this or that? And you do any you do what you want to do. And I think that calmed her down, as you know, she got into financial literacy quite a bit when, mm-hmm. uh, right with Bank on India and, and uh, doing taxes with the IRS, who, who was terrific to us. Kate McKnight was terrific with us uh, from the IRS. So it, it's just we just kind of been together. It's it's uh it's a it's a pretty unique relationship. And I I heard I don't know how many times I heard that she was by far the most visible first lady yeah. that anybody ever remember in Indianapolis. Uh, and I, I just, I thought that was terrific. It was kind of funny because I, I had an unofficial role. Again, when, when you're nobody and you win the political race, all the political people come out and say, do this, 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 you have to do this. And one of the things they told me is don't bring your wife. No one wants to see your wife. Uh, they want to see you. And I said, that's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, said, I said, we're empty nesters. The kids were at IU at the time. And, said as so i had an un- i made an unofficial rule which was if it's after five or on the weekend if you want me you're getting winning and that's just the way it is and so she was with me everywhere uh, on those times and then a year later when i would go to lunch somewhere in indianapolis people started asking me where's winning where is he yeah right so she started going with me during the day too where it was appropriate and so she was kind of with me all the time and and everybody knew that if it was just a normal relate normal event like a lunch or something like that when he was coming with me and people liked her i mean she's a very likable person obviously and people liked having her around and they liked talking to her and so i, I think it just became it kind of became a special relationship i think in the city because people noticed it uh, when we did our uh, our 25th wedding anniversary was the second day of my of my being in office so we didn't have a 25th anniversary but on the 30th we held a value duel and like 180 people there. Wow. And then we started doing value renewals in the uh, city market. Uh, Stevie stays there, the great director, former right. director, that asked us, "Can you do? Can you do value renewal for everybody else there?" And we started doing that for a couple of years. I, I hope they're still doing that. But she was just a special, and people really liked her and liked seeing her. And 39 years will be 40 come this January. Uh, congratulations on that. Hey, you mentioned, you do, excuse me, doing a lot of reading and writing. And one thing I want to ask you about is that, that real focus. You touched on it earlier, but on energy security and, and you wrote a book, less oil or more caskets, right? Right. 
And I remember we talked about that on the show one time, very provocative title, but it's something, did, did that interest in energy security begin with your service in that, in the first Gulf war or where, where did it, where did it come from? You would think it would have, but it really did not because at that we knew we were over there fighting for oil. It really disturbed me that nobody in Washington would say we were fighting for oil, but that was about nothing but oil. All that said, that did not pique anything, pique my interest in any way because there was no solution. But now there is a solution. If 70% of the world's oil is used for transportation, cars and trucks, well, there's a solution around the corner here. And I know we can't do it tomorrow, but tomorrow's getting here pretty quickly. I've been driving these types of cars for since 2016. Uh, and it's pretty obvious what can happen in, in this regard. Uh, and pretty quickly too. I think with, within 20 years, we can do this thing and we can get rid of our dependence on oil. It's not, and I, I don't see this from the American point of view. I, you gotta understand, I, I'm looking at this from a global point of view. The world can get off the dependence from the Middle East and Russia, where so much of this energy comes from. And look at what happens in the Middle East and Russia. How are they funded? I mean, we actually, we actually protect the oil. We spend $80 billion a year annually, about 15% of the defense budget, to protect the oil supplies in the Middle East. That's what we do. We've been doing it for 50 years. The average American has no idea we're doing that, but we do that. We protect the oil that funds the terrorism that's used against us. Hmm. We protect the oil that funds the terrorism that's used against us. We actually do that, and we've been doing that for decades. Look at what Russia's doing. Over 50% of Russian revenue is oil and gas. They don't have an army. Of course, it looks like they don't have much of one right now either, but, right. but I mean, they don't really, they can't do these things. They can't have a nuclear arsenal. They can't export terrorism. They can't do all the things that they do without oil and gas revenue. There are 11 time zones of mediocrity if, if they don't have oil and gas revenue. My point is make it local, make local national energy, not just us, everybody. And then it's a lot more peaceful world. And why do we want a peaceful world? Because who has to intervene? When it's not a peaceful world, America, it's our troops. So it's important for us to make sure it's a peaceful world. And there'll be a lot more peaceful world if each country had their own energy. I don't care if it's nuclear, hydro, solar, wind, batteries. I don't care what it is. But it'd be a lot more peaceful world if everybody had local energy. Final question for you, Greg. What's what's next? Is it more more writing, golf, politics? Uh, you, you interested in maybe di dipping your toe more back in? I get asked all the time to get back into politics. It's kind of funny because I wasn't very political, as you well know, but that works, right? I mean, people want somebody who's not overly political, just wants to get the job done. So I, I, I get asked quite a bit. I don't think I'm going to go in that direction. What I will continue the reading and writing. We're comfortable here in Myrtle Beach, but we're not going to stay. I'm pretty sure we're not going to stay. We'll stay at least another year or two. And then I will even either move back to Indianapolis, which we're, uh, we'll uh, do that or we're going to go further south into probably the Orlando area. And so it'll be one of those two things. But uh, I'm looking at moving back to Indianapolis. I want some, I always tell people I want more, one more significant thing to do, one more significant opportunity. If I can make a difference, um, then I, I will do that. And I'm hoping that's in Indianapolis. Uh, if not, we'll probably go further south down to uh, the Orlando area But because we have friends and family down there. But uh, but I, I, I like it here in Miller Beach, but I just kind of, I, I want to do, like I said, I got new knees. I'm renewed. I want <laughs> <laughs> you're ready to go. I like it. 
ready to go. And I'm hoping that's in Indianapolis, but if it's not, we're looking for further south and uh, come back and visit routinely because we've been down here in Myrtle Beach for a year. I think we've been up five or six, I know at least five times, maybe six times up to Indianapolis already. Very good. Well, Greg Ballard, it's been a real treat to have you on the podcast. Thank you uh, for joining us. Thanks for your service to our country, our service to Indianapolis, uh, your service to Indianapolis as well. Very significant indeed. And we look forward to that, uh, whatever that next chapter might be. But Greg, thanks very much. And uh, best wishes to you and a Winnie. Thanks, Gary. I appreciate it very much. Always love doing the shows. All right. And thank you for joining us on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. It is a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download all of the episodes of the Business and Beyond podcast and catch Indiana Business News 24-7. All you have to do is go to InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.